Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. I am John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to have you here joining us on the Live Inspired Movement. On every Live Inspired podcast episode, I have amazing guests joining me to share their stories, their successes, their failures, their lessons, their life. More importantly, though, you're going to take away real ideas, a shift in your mindset, and practical action steps to apply in your own life. Now, before we invite on today's guest, I want to make sure that you are following us online at all the various places where you can learn and and expand and grow emotionally and spiritually. Check us out on Facebook and Twitter, YouTube. You can get to all those sites by checking out our primary website. It's at JohnO'LearyInspires.com. Again, JohnO'LearyInspires.com. That is where we keep our videos, our writings, our blogs, our former podcast guests. You're going to love it all. So check it out at JohnO'LearyInspires.com. As many of you know, I am an author and a speaker. I've had the honor of speaking at an organization called The Leader in Me. It's one of my favorite organizations. They have been elevating the way that teachers teach, that students learn, that leaders grow and live and expand. And uh, part of that expansion, part of that growth is is because of Todd Davis's work. Todd Davis is the author of Get Better, 15 Practices to Build Effective Relationships at Work. He's going to make a compelling case that the key to improving our effectiveness, our relationships, our results begins by getting better ourselves. He is an expert. He's a friend. He's an author. He's a great guy, and he's our guest today. So, my friends, I invite you right now to buckle up, to open up your journals, open up your minds, open up your eyes, and get ready for a wild ride talking about you becoming an even better version of yourself. So, welcome to the Live Inspired podcast, our newest friend, Todd Davis. Todd, welcome to Live Inspired. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. And I would recommend that everyone at some point in your life have John O'Leary introduce you because I'll tell you, you feel like a million bucks. <laughs> well, you, you've, you've earned the paycheck, man. Your work stands for itself. And uh, I'm delighted today to promote it and uh, to, mo- to also promote how we can live better lives. And that, that's really what your work is about today, isn't it? That's right. That's exactly right. For those who aren't familiar with Franklin Covey, for those who aren't familiar with Leader and Me or Todd Davis or maybe the work that you're doing, Todd, give us a snapshot of of who you are and what you're working on today. Thank you. Uh, Well, first of all, for those of you who aren't familiar with Franklin Covey, Franklin Covey is a global company specializing in performance improvement. What we do is help organizations and teams within those organizations and schools, as, as John mentioned, achieve results that requires a change in human behavior. So that's, that's, in a nutshell, what we do. And you're so kind to, to have me on the, on the show here and share what, what I'm doing. I've been with the organization for over 21 years now. And for the last two years, in addition to my role as chief people officer, we can talk more about that if you mm-hmm. want, uh, I've been writing a book uh, that John referred to called Get Better, 15 Proven Practices to Build Effective Relationships at Work. It's uh, something I'm most passionate about because uh, I've been in roles like the chief people officer uh, role for the majority of my career. And so I've had the, the advantage and the opportunity to be working in the thick of relationships throughout every organization I've been in. Chief people officer, man, that, that sounds loaded. Tell, tell me and our friends, <laughs> what is a chief people officer? Yeah, thanks for asking. Well, the chief people officer role, as the title suggests, is all about the people. For those of you who are familiar uh, with the seven habits of highly effective people, and, and uh, a good chunk of the world is, it continues to be a best-selling, uh, one of the best-selling business books of all time. The late Dr. Stephen R. Covey referred to what we call PPC balance, production mm-hmm. and production capability. In fact, he used the analogy of the goose and the golden egg, the, you know, the nursery mm-hmm. line where the farmer goes out and 
sees the egg and cashes it in and can't believe it. And we, day after day does the same thing and finally gets so anxious and greedy that he cuts off the head of the goose and reaches down and, and has killed the very thing that produces the golden eggs. Well, the P is production and the PC is production capability. And my job, and I wake up every morning thinking about this as the chief people officer, is to make sure we keep that balance and that what we don't do is what, what most companies end up doing, including ours sometimes, is we, we get so focused on the production, on the results, that we start to, if we're not careful, neglect the very thing, the goose or the production capability that produces those things. So as, as chief people officer, while I'm responsible for a lot of things, my number one focus is on our talent, our talent worldwide, making sure we're finding the right talent and then we're nurturing and, and growing and engaging that talent so we don't lose it. And I, I love your work. I love the specific role you have within your firm, your organization. And Todd, I think some of our listeners right now are, are uh, wondering: Is this show for me? Because I'm I'm not in corporate America. I'm not in uh, I'm not in corporate Australia or the UK or Poland, wherever they're working today. They may be retired. They may be staying home with the kids. They may mm-hmm. be at a place in their life where uh, this isn't right now their role. And yet, I know your heart and I know your mindset. Tell us why we all should be paying attention to not only this book but also to the ideas you and I will be talking about on, on the show today. Well, because, yes, so I'm so glad those of you who are listening, stay listening because yeah. all change, all meaningful change begins with you. There's, a, there's a, a famous play written by the French philosopher uh, Jean-Paul Sartre in 1940. Um, the play is called No Exit. Perhaps some of you have heard of it. And the play begins with three individuals in the afterlife. And these three, I guess I'll call them souls, yes. find themselves in this room yes. with no door and where the windows are completely bricked up. And as you can appreciate, they probably start to really irritate each other. And yes. The more they irritate each other, the more they try to change each other. And that doesn't go so well. And they soon come to realize that hell isn't fire and brimstone or this torture chamber they'd imagined, but hell is in fact other people, <laughs> people who <laughs> won't do or change or behave the way that we want them to. Mm. Now, why does this matter to everybody listening, whether you're in a corporation, whether you're retired, whether you're in a small company? It's because regardless of where we are in life, we're, more and more is required of us, and we're all measured in a lot of different ways, but ultimately, we're all measured by the results we get. And so unless you are a pro golfer, maybe, the rest of us get our results with and through other people, whether we're in a company, just within our own family, whether we're in a, in a small company, whether we're retired, we get our results with and through other people, and other people as the people in Sartre's place found, are really difficult to change. And so what do we do? You know, the late Dr. Covey said that all meaningful change comes from the inside out, and that systemic organizational change can't happen without changes in individual behavior. So, you know, I believe Gandhi put it best, that we, we be the change, the most influential, effective, and honestly, the happiest people in the world, they model the mm. very behaviors that they're trying to see in others. And I've done this for, and I'm certainly not perfect at it, and I trip and fall a lot, but when I can start with myself, when I can look in the mirror and say, what do I need to do differently? What do I need to model differently? It has a significant impact on, on those around me. So that's the premise of, of the Get Better book and what, what I'm all about. Todd, when you're not writing and you're not the, the chief people officer, what, what do you do uh, outside of work? Well... I have, uh, I have a family. I have uh, four grown children and six grandchildren, five, five uh, grandsons and, and one granddaughter. And uh, unfortunately, four of those children, live, I'm in Salt Lake City, Utah, and four of those grandsons uh, live up in Seattle with their mom and dad. My son works for Amazon up there. So we, we do a lot of weekend trips up to Seattle, mm-hmm. close to our grandkids. Uh, my wife and I enjoy a lot of movies, so we are we are frequently at the movies. And uh, I, I uh, about 18 years ago, took up running. I guess I should say jogging. I haven't won any marathons, <laughs> but I've I've run 17 of them, and uh, it's it's a little bit addicting. So so that's uh, some of the things that I do in my spare time. Well, as as each of us run through life, it's been said that everybody has a story. It's just not the story that we're telling the world. 
And I, <laughs> there I, you go. <laughs> I, your book and your life, it's remarkable. But I think the reason why sometimes we want to pay attention to both is because we trust the person telling it. We trust the experiences they've had. So I, I'm going to take us back from these 17 marathons and these six grandchildren and these four children and that one wife way back to where you were born and what life was like for you growing up. So, Todd, Todd Davis, little kid, where were you born and what was life like? Well, I was born right here where I still live. I was born in Salt Lake City, Utah. I'm the middle child of, of five siblings. I, I, I don't know if all of the birth order analogies are true, but I think the, the middle child syndrome as being the peacemaker yes. uh, certainly was true for me. And it probably is, has a lot to do with where I landed in the roles that I've had as a, as a coach and as a mediator. And because I, yeah. I found myself doing that even as a young child with my siblings and, and other people around me. Your uh, Salt Lake City upbringing, tell me what, what that was like. Well, it was, uh, I had, we, we had great friends. We had, uh, you know, my, we, we were kind of middle income folks. My, my father actually uh, is passed away now, but was a set designer. Hmm. and uh, was a, a remarkable artist. And, and a lot of movies, as you know, or, or may know, are filmed here in Utah. And so he was the, the set designer and scenic artist for a lot of films that were made here, as well as a lot of the theaters that are, are here in Salt Lake. And uh, my mother, so I guess I came from a theater family because my mother was a, an actress. She's still alive. She's 87 wow. and, and kicking strong, but she's a, an actress and a director and a producer and a writer and uh and so I, I grew up sitting in the audience and applauding <laughs> most of the time, so, although they, they did get me to be in a play once in a while. I met my wife in uh, Hello, Dolly in uh, 1975. <laughs> man, that, Well, there's a story there, and we'll bump into that in a moment. Tell, tell me a little bit more about your mom outside of what she did. Tell me about like who she was. Well, she's uh, so, so appreciate you asking about this. This is uh, unusual in a very good way. She uh, she also grew up here. Her uh, she had she has a brother and, and uh, there, were, there were four kids. So she was one of three girls and a brother. And their father, my grandfather, who I only met once, left them when she was about ten years old. Never came back. Mm. Said he was going to California to build. A, he was a builder, going to build a house for them, and they never heard from him again. So uh, I I well, that's a sad story. Uh, my mom is tough, and mm-hmm. she. Um, she has been through a lot in her, her young life, and so she grew up being quite resilient and um, uh, really, really uh, just looking out for others. And, and it actually had, you know, I think when something like that happens to you, to go either way. She grew up just making sure that the people around her knew she was there for them and that they never had to worry that she was going to leave. You know, you know I think for a little girl to have your, your daddy leave and never come back would be probably one of the most traumatic things that could happen. And uh, and so she spent her life doing just the opposite, reassuring people. In fact, her later years, as I mentioned, she's 87, but she just retired two years ago mm. from a, a working in a theater here for a, 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 a not a halfway house, but kind of a halfway house for troubled teens that had been in trouble with the law. And part of their reward, if they could do so well, was to be in a play because mm. some of them had never even seen a play, let alone be in one. And so she would direct these pretty remarkable plays until up to two years ago with these with these young troubled youth that were like had new life because they got to be Kevya and Fiddler on the Roof yes. or they got to be, you, you know, the music man. So anyway, maybe I'm going on too much. But if I were a rich man, person. there you go. I, I, I won't sing it, guys. You can Google it later on. But it's one of my mom and dad's favorite plays, too. Uh, <laughs> but she and my dad were both big inspirations for me. Your mom sounds currently still and uh, certainly looking back, just remarkable. Talk a little bit about your dad, too. Well, uh, I'll try and do that without getting emotional. He was, uh, he like passed away, gosh, 20, passed away in 95. And uh, he, he was, my, my mom is an extrovert. And like I said, was an actress and a director and a writer. And, and so uh, a great person and more in the limelight. And my dad would just sit back and smile. And my dad said very few words. And you could see, he, although he was certainly the head of our family, mm. he never argued with my dad. But he couldn't have been more proud of my mom. And like I said, he was just this remarkable uh, artist and, and could paint scenery that you, you swear was real. I mean, he was just amazing and very, very, not super quiet, but quite quiet and just uh, probably one of the most caring individuals. After he passed away, we continued, even to this day, to find out 
acts of kindness and service that he did for others that he never ever told people about. He that was his that was the way he rolled and, and what he did. So again, I had I was fortunate to have two tremendous examples for me growing up. Interest that you were passionate about in school? Did you have any, whether it's sports, academic, faith based, arts, <laughs> crafts, whatever it might be? Yeah, my kids would laugh. I am I am probably the most non-athletic uh, person in the world. In fact, I I tell a story in the book. This is no lie. My dad was the the little league baseball coach, and my brother, my older brother, was uh, was very athletic, and I was not. And I would I, I would go play little league baseball, but I would just you know I was there to socialize. Yes. And the only thing the only thing worse than I you know I'd, I'd be out in left field. I think my dad would try and put two people in left field just because he knew I couldn't catch a ball. The only thing I hated worse than that was when it was my turn to get up to bat because it was just humiliating. I could not hit the ball if my life depended on it. And I still remember the day that my friend Greg was up to bat before me, and I, wa- and I struck out every time I had never hit the ball. And I watched my friend Greg, and, he, and, and the ball was pitched to me, and he didn't swing, and he didn't swing, he didn't swing, he didn't swing again, and then he got to walk to first base. And I thought for the first time, why did no one tell me this was an yes. option? Yes. <laughs> if you can't hit the ball, you just don't swing. You get to walk across. So I got up there so excited for this newfound insight, and I didn't swing, and I didn't swing, I didn't swing, and then I got told to go back and sit in the dugout. <laughs> and this is how little I paid attention to the game. So I thought, now, Greg got to walk to Yeah, this face, makes no sense. And I, yeah, and I learned on the drive home from my dad the difference between a ball and a strike. So, so I, athletics were not my strong suit growing up. Um, I was, uh, I had, I had a lot of friends. I was uh, pretty social. I think I had and probably still have the need for attention, uh, which is probably what took me into being so focused on relationships in my life. Um, less from a needy thing now and more from a, it's just meaningful. And I realized that there, that's what's really important in life. Todd, where'd you go to college and what was your major? Went to the University of Utah and uh, majored in communications because it was how quickly I could get in and get out. I was, uh, I was a, I was, a, I struggled as a, a classroom student from as early as I could remember. When you finally do get out, you're out of the classroom. You're high fiving, if no one else, at least you're high fiving yourself. What, what was your first job after graduating? Oh, you ask great questions. My first job. Look, my, you know what? Mom, let me just answer. Let me say this. We look at people like you, who are chief people officers of massive international organizations. And we think, well, they're different. And then you hear stories about a kid that doesn't know what a ball and a strike is in fifth grade, walking back to the dugout. Then you hear about a kid who is a lousy student. Then you hear about a kid who had no real navigable path. And yet he ends up in this place. And for me, man, that is so inspiring to realize that we other failures and normal people can go on to do extraordinary things. So I, well, they're not ordinary yeah. questions, but they're, they're the foundational ones that lead us to where we get in life. I, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I uh, yeah, I think my my challenge I have I had and have a, a pretty big imagination. And while that sounds nice, it got me into a lot of trouble. And so in school, I think I learned that when I applied myself, I could get an A on test, and then the next week I could fail a test in the same mm-hmm. subject. And it's because I just would daydream all day long. I, I think I would be diagnosed with several you know, letters of the alphabet today. <laughs> we were much more astute with ADD and all that. Yes. But I, uh, my first job, my mom, before she married my dad, had dated the man who owned a huge toy company, Western Toy and Hobby, here in Utah. And there was a, there was a division of it called Twirl Town Toys. And they were the, these were the little packaged toys as you're checking out that are on pegs, like, you know, little plastic soldiers mm-hmm. or yo-yos or things like that. So my job, I was, I don't know if we were violating labor laws. I was 14. I would ride my bike down to his warehouse and I would sit at this grommet machine and I would put the little toy in a plastic bag and then put the header, the cardboard header on the top of it that said Twirl Town Toys and I'd punch a ring through it. And I did that all day long after school. And like I said, I was 14 years old. That was my first job. That sounds like the kind of job that should motivate you to get back into the classroom or figure out how to, how to <laughs> figure out calls, right. balls and strikes a little bit more effectively. You're exactly right. When You're you, exactly right. When you f- finished college, what, what was your path going forward? What were you really moving toward? Well, I, uh, I happened on to a, a uh, job selling copiers at a company here, a local company here. And I had never anticipated – let me back up. When I was in college, I was a teller uh, for a bank. And um, that was, you know, a college job to get me through college. And then I thought, you know what, I'm going to, 
banking is, is kind of working here. And I got promoted uh, from this part-time teller to work in the comptroller's uh, division. And I actually was the and, – and people that know me, because numbers are, aren't my strong suit now, I manage a budget, and, and that mm-hmm. was not something that comes natural to me. But I bought and sold federal funds for the bank, for a large bank here. And people that hear that about me now say, really? Yes. <laughs> you did that? And – and no disrespect to anybody listening, I still remember the day I was in my boss's office, the controller of the bank, and he had left for something and come back, and his his paycheck was sitting on his desk, not upside down, not turned over, was sitting right there on his desk. And, you know, true confessions, I glanced down at it while we were talking, and I saw what he made, and it was a lot, lot, lot less than I had ever imagined a controller, controller of, a, of, a, of a large bank would make. And mm-hmm. that's when I thought, okay, I don't think I'm going to stay in banking. <laughs> so, so then I went into sales, and I, and I sold copiers for many years and learned the, and the appreciation and the fun and the stress and the enjoyment of really running your own company. I mean, yeah. it, was, it wasn't my company. I was a salesperson, but I had my own territory, and I, I kind of directed – how much money I wanted to make. And I had a young family start at the time. And, and so it was, that was a real um, foundational part of my life for my future career and just owning and taking full ownership and responsibility for what was, uh, you know, what, what I was responsible for. What was your first introduction into Franklin Covey or Mr. Covey? I'm not, I'm not exactly sure the, the pathway in. Yeah, it was, it was the Covey Leadership Center. And I, um, I had, after the bank, I went into the medical industry and I did medical recruitment. Well, yeah, I did medical recruitment for about nine years, and um, and then a friend of mine was starting a small human resource outsourcing company, and he called me and said, "Look, we're putting together these these people, and you've got such experience in recruiting. We've got an attorney who's going to do employment law for these companies, and we've got a benefits broker, and so we contracted with several companies up and down what's called the Wasatch Front here in Utah, uh, mm-hmm. from you know string of cities, and Covey Leadership Center was one of our clients. So I did recruiting." This would be about 23 years, 22, 23 years ago. I did recruiting for many clients, one of which was Covey Leadership Center. I had recently read The Seven Habits. Mm-hmm. was a big fan. <laughs> and then after recruiting for them for about a year, they said, gosh, we really would like to bring recruiting in-house. Could you send us – we'd like some people. We don't have an in-house recruiter. Would you send us some people? So I started sending them friends of mine who had been in the recruiting industry. And I sent like five resumes of some really sharp people and good friends. And then I thought – wait a minute, I think I'd like this. <laughs> so, so I'll tell you some of the most awkward conversations I had in my career. I sent in my resume. I said, I know this is odd, but I would like to explore more being your recruitment manager. Well, they interviewed me along with some of my friends. They hired me, and I had to call my friends and say, yeah. They went with somebody else. <laughs> it was me. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so that's how I started 21, a little over 21 years ago with what was then called the Covey Leadership Center. And then about a year and a half after that, um, we merged with Franklin Quest, and, and that, that is now Franklin Covey. And for those of us who don't know anything about Franklin Covey, t- just give us a snapshot of the work you're doing and the global reach of it. Yeah, so so as I mentioned, we are well, we're the combination of several companies, but primarily Covey Leadership Center, which was started by the late Dr. Stephen R. Covey and his his work in the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and then Franklin Quest was started by a gentleman by the name of Hiram Smith, and the Franklin Day Planner, which you mm-hmm. know a lot of the world is familiar with, and so those two companies merged, like I said, about 20 years ago, and what we do is we work on behavior change. We actually, we, we're still affiliated with the product side with the, with the planners, but that's a privately held company now. We sold that off, gosh, more than 10 years ago. And so the, the Franklin Day Planner is now owned by Franklin Covey, or Franklin Products, it's called. Mm-hmm. And we are all about leadership development. And again, leadership is a choice, not a position. So it's not just leaders of companies, it's how to lead your own life. You mentioned your passion around the, the leader in me. So many years ago, a woman by the name of Muriel Summers was at a Seven Habits conference mm-hmm. or, or, or work session, and she talked to Dr. Kevy after and said, well, can we not do this in schools? Is there anything for this in schools? And at the time, there wasn't. And boy, you talk about a mover and a shaker and someone who made a difference. So she, she went back, yeah. took the Seven Habits, content and she was that was the beginning of what is now called the leader in me where we take the same leadership principles and the seven habits into the schools and and start teaching children 
from, you know, right when they begin school, that we're all leaders, that we can all choose to be leaders and lead our lives and take charge and responsibility for everything around us. And it's, it is remarkable. It is, we're a, we're a, a mission driven company and the leader in me in the education practice is at the heart of our company because whether you're, whether you are a parent or not, we were all that student at one time or another and had that teacher or that counselor or that principal who made all the difference in, in what, where we are today and what we became or what we're becoming. So and, and I know a lot of our listeners are teachers, principals, superintendents, parents of kids or kids themselves. Guys, if, if you've never heard of The Leader in Me, I just encourage you to check it out. I've, I've been in a dozen or more Leader in Me schools, and it's different. The culture's different. The teachers are different. The students are different. And because of those things, the parents are different. It's a really cool program, and, and this is not the, ju- the, the, the core of our conversation today, but it's a great tangent. So check out The, the Leader in Me, and uh, you and your, your district will be better because of that. Talk to me a little bit about the idea of you realizing that you might be an author. Because that, that, that's a leap to go from being a dad and a grandfather and a chief people officer to saying, you know what, I, inside of me, there's a book. How, how do you make that leap? Yeah. You know, I don't want to uh, kibosh this, but that was never a desire inside, inside yeah. of me. This was kind of pulled out of me. And I'm so happy now. The book officially launches next Tuesday. I'm so happy now that that wise people around me did this. But several years ago, when I was here at Franklin Covey, I did have an idea. I had worked with so many great leaders and, and so many leaders that could be great that weren't. And I thought uh, one commonality between all of them was humility. Mm-hmm. It was the thing that I saw so common. And so I did get excited uh, several years ago, gosh, five or six years ago now, about writing a book on humility. Now, I, I had enough content to maybe fill up three pages, so it was going to be a yes. short read. <laughs> but anyway, and I and I had this notion, and as I'd work with and coach different leaders, and I thought, oh my gosh, this is the missing piece, or this is what they've got in spades. And one day it occurred to me, and I talked about this in, in the Get Better book, I thought, I know what the title of the book is. <laughs> I know all the content, but I know what the title. This is my challenge all through school, by the way. And uh, so it was it was going to be Lead with Humility. I was so excited about this, and I, and I had gathered some information, and I Googled it because I wanted to make sure there wasn't a book out there called Lead with Humility, and I'll be darned if there weren't. There wasn't a book. Lead with Humility had already been written. And not only that, the book had been written by Pope Francis himself. <laughs> I, was, I stared at the computer. I thought, well, I wonder if I want to go toe-to-toe with the Pope. Yeah, yes, this. take, take him down, man. I opted not to do that. Yeah. Uh, by the way, bought the book. Read it. It's an awesome book. So that, that was my one desire, like I said, five or six years ago to write a book. Well, about two years ago, because I used to work in our training depart- development department to create a lot of our training, I was asked by our head of marketing if I could come up for a weekend to his house and help put together this little gift book for many of our clients. And it was just going to be a, a compilation of of some of our best practices in all of our content. And I said, sure, happy to do that. So I spent the weekend with him and a couple other people. And from that, I, I won't tell you the whole story, but from that, um, Simon and Schuster, our publisher and others said, wait a minute, you're the chief people officer. No one has been yes. in a better position than you in the, you know, kind of the people company to see what works and what doesn't work within relationships. So that was the beginning of this. And, uh, and it was, I, I wasn't dragged into it. I was happy to help, but I, I never pictured this day happening, that I would be the author of, of this book. And, uh, and it's here. Now that, now that it is here, do you feel like you, uh, you just gave birth to a, a massive child? I mean, I, this, this is a ton of work and sweat and tears and early mornings and late nights and dreaming and scheming and planning that goes into it. Not, now that it's upon us, how do you feel? Well, yes, it was a, you, 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 you have a great empathy, Gene, because you can, you can understand, or at least you, it seems like you understand. It was a little bit ironic that for the last two years I'm writing night and day uh, and with a very talented team, a book on relationships while I'm trying to keep the most important relationships yes. in my life intact, because it was a, you know, I was a, a absentee for, for several things trying to get this done. Um, but it has been, yeah, I've, I've never had a child, but I've certainly had a couple of kidney stones. <laughs> and it has been a labor of, of love. Um, and, and what I realize 
again, I, I, I don't want to send the wrong message here. I so appreciate the opportunity of writing a book. I never had the desire to. But when I get on calls like this, when I go do, which I'm doing right now, keynotes around the, the country, and in fact, in the world, I, 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 I delivered a keynote for the World Business Forum down in Mexico last month and doing another one in Colombia next month. When I start talking about this subject, it's not, yes. it's not me promoting the book. It is, I, it, I realize how passionate I am about this because I have so much experience at it. And I say that from a huge level of humility. Just like you, the more re- repetitions we get at something – the better we are at it. So while I am not very good at baseball or at putting together podcasts, I have worked in conversations, meaningful conversations, relationships for the better part of my 30 year career. And so it, it just occurred to me, I have so many reps at this and I can, I can really add value and help people not from an ego place in me, but just from a, I have a lot of experience at this. So I'm going to ask you a broad question and then ask for a, a few specifics. The, the first broad question is, when people finish, whether it's hearing you speak in Mexico or Salt Lake or anywhere else, or when they finish the book, Get Better, what do you expect them to do better after, after they leave your presence? So that's the broad question. What, what's the real takeaway from reading a book like this? Yeah. If they could remember nothing else after hearing me speak or reading the book, it would be they would realize they are in charge of their lives. Mm. That while we can look to John or Todd or Pam or somebody else and say, well, they didn't give me that, or, they, you know, I had this go wrong, or they make me so mad, or this person, they get all the luck. While that's natural, and we all do that, I certainly have done that. If they could leave saying, you know what? I'm the captain of my ship. I'm in control of my life. And while I don't have control over everything, I certainly have a lot more influence than I ever thought before. That's what I would want them to to know and believe, because it's true. It is true. And you put forward 15 practices or ideas that allow us to harness that truth, to uh, stand on the bow and realize, yes, indeed, we are the captain. We may not be able to control the weather or the storms or the waves or the inmates that work with us on this ship. But guess what? We, we can indeed navigate how we, our life progresses in front of us and how it, how it progresses internally and spiritually. Tell me, though, you, you put forward 15 practices. I'm not going to have you go through all 15. That would, that would be just, I think, too <laughs> many. Give, give, me, give me two or three that you're like, John, I, I love this, this, and that. Which, what are your yeah. three favorites? Well, hard question. I do love all 15. It was 21. For almost the first year, the book was 21 practices, and we, we realized that was when we got down to 15. So as I, as I think back on all of them, gosh, it, it is really tough, but if I wanted your listeners to be – if they weren't going to get a chance to buy the book, which I hope they will, but if they weren't, what I'd want them to know is in there is practice one. It's practice one for a reason. It's called Wear Glasses That Work. It just ties right back to what we were just talking about, what I hope they would uh, leave with, if nothing else, that – we, we see the world as we think it is, not as it really is. I got my first very real set of glasses when I was in the second grade. Maybe this is why I wasn't so good at baseball, because I was pretty blind. Yeah. And I remember putting those glasses on, and seriously, for the first time, I could see the leaves, the detail of the leaves up on the trees. And prior to that, I'd look up and I'd see green. I'd see kind of a green blur or mass. But here's the point. I thought that's what everyone saw when they looked at leaves on the trees. And that's the challenge and the, and the promise and the opportunity with wearing glasses that work. It's seeing things as they really are, not as we have convinced ourselves they are. And that has to do with some potential I see or don't see in somebody else or an opportunity or where I'm at in my life. So wear glasses that work is stepping back from our own paradigm, as Dr. Covey called it, and, and, and deciding if our long-held opinions are accurate, and many times they are, but many times they're not. Many times we have, we've decided something and convinced ourselves of something that isn't true. So that's, that's number one for a reason, because it shapes everything else. Todd, how, um, how, do we, how do we who hold these beliefs to be true, whether it's in relationship or the fact that we, we just have bad luck, man, we're victims to everything, just ask us, or cultural beliefs, what mindset beliefs, all these things that we hold so fast to with fingers grabbing onto it as tightly as we possibly can. How do we possibly remove those glasses that we've seen our life yeah. through our entire life? Yeah. Well, it's, it's not easy. And, and like everything in life, it's worthwhile. It says easy does hard, as the phrase goes. 
So I, there's a great tool I use with people when I coach them around this, and I use it for myself. I still get stuck in every one of these practices. Get better is an ongoing journey. No one ever arrives, but if we continue to focused on it, we, we can be miles ahead of where we were. So on that particular practice, what I will do, and this is just a, a hypothetical example, somebody's really challenged by someone else or a circumstance. I'll have them write down, and I'll do this for myself, write down all of the things that make this relationship so challenging, okay? So I write down everything I can think of that makes this person or this relationship or this situation so challenging. Then what I'll do is tell someone, okay, now go ahead and circle or underline of all those things you've written, those things that are facts. And by facts, I mean you could show them to five or ten other people, and they would readily agree with you on those things. Well, what you'll find is rarely, if ever, do you circle everything on that list. So then what's remaining are opinions. Now, they might be right, but nevertheless, they're strongly held opinions. And just the fact of this visual exercise of me staring at something and saying Marietta's lazy, thinking, now, wait a minute. Why have I decided Marietta's lazy? Mm. And it gets me to start thinking, you know, is Marietta lazy or is Marietta not engaged? And why is Marietta not engaged? Oh, that's right. Marietta got divorced last year. Marietta is trying to take care of this young, you know, uh, that's hypothetical. But I'm, but if we can take the first step to saying, you know what, that is not a fact. It might be right, but it's an opinion. Am I, am I mature enough to step back and say, I would consider looking at that opinion differently? That's the first step. And I'll tell you, it goes a long way. That's how you start. Take us forward from there. And I realize we are going to be reading the entire book and we are going to have uh, perfect glasses afterwards. But for those of us who don't quite have them yet, what, what's your second favorite practice? Well, and again, don't, that's not my favorite, but it's just one I'm, I'm foundational. Looking at home, I think, man, I I, it's like your children. I have 15 children. I'm thinking, no, I love them all the same. <laughs> but I don't have 15 children. Okay. Um, I would say another one, so they're all important. Practice 13 is make it safe to tell the truth. Mm. And what we mean by that is do you make, what I mean by that is do you make it safe for others to tell you the truth? If we truly are, if we truly believe that we're on this quest to get better, that we have room for improvement, you know, if you don't think that, well, then you don't need to listen to podcasts or read books or anything. But I think the majority of us, no matter how successful we become or not become, realize we're on a journey. And if we don't make it safe for others to tell us the truth, we will continue on in life with blind spots, thinking we're all that and more and that we don't have any area to improve. So, so, so there are, there are steps to make it safe for others to tell you the truth. And if you can do that in a team or an organization or in a family, oh, my gosh, it can create this, this ongoing improvement culture where you, 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 are, you are continually in a state of getting better in a real healthy way. Man, that is so, that's so what awesome. is all about. Yeah. Give, give, us, um, give us the cliff note version of how we can make it safe to tell the truth and to receive okay. the truth. Okay. Yeah, I, I'll see if – and my first name is Cliff, so I'll see if I can do the Cliff <laughs> version. Okay. So there are four steps that I've found. First, assume good intent. We, we don't assume bad intent. You know, if John says to me, hey, Todd, you got a piece of spinach in your teeth, <laughs> you know, I don't think, oh, you just want to criticize me. Yes. No, you're trying to help me. But if John says to me, hey, Todd, I, I noticed in meetings you kind of dominate the, the discussion, and it doesn't give others a chance to contribute. Well, I all of a sudden get defensive, and I assume bad yes. intent. Why does John want to criticize me? When 90% of the time, 99% of the time, people just want to help. So assume good intent. That's the first step. The second step is ask for feedback. Now, you're thinking, well, duh, okay, but it's the way we ask for feedback. For example, if I, um, if I know somebody's listening to this podcast, and I walk up to them right after we're done, and I say, hey, Cindy, what did you think of me on the podcast? Well, what's Cindy going to say? <laughs> like all of us, she's going to say, oh, I, I thought it was great, Todd. Well, you know, really good job. Versus if yesterday I said to Cindy, hey, Cindy, I noticed you, you signed up. You're going to be on the podcast tomorrow. Could you do me a favor? I'm doing a lot of these. Would you mind listening? And then later on tomorrow or maybe the next day, we could get together. If you wouldn't mind writing and sharing with me things you think I could do better. Mm -hmm. Now, I'd certainly love to hear what you think went well, but I'd really be interested because I want to continuously be improving. Would you mind doing that and sharing with me? Okay, I'm asking Cindy for feedback in both cases, but you can see the difference no in the way I ask for feedback it makes it very safe for Cindy to tell me the truth. The third thing, and there's four of them, so I'll hurry here. The third thing is evaluate the feedback. I think one of the reasons we're so hesitant to ask for feedback is we think we've got to implement all of it. Not true. We evaluate it and think, okay, what resonates with me? What resonates with my style? What resonates with, with where I'm trying to improve? And with what I don't, 
that's okay. I'm going to mm-hmm. put that on the shelf. I'm going to consider it later. And then the fourth step is to act on it. Acting on it does not mean implement it. Acting on it means deciding what I'm going to incorporate, what I'm not, getting back with Cindy in this case, sending her a thank you note, saying, gosh, I so appreciate this. Would you mind if in the future I called on you again because you give me some really valuable information? I'm going to incorporate some of it right now. Some of it I'm going to continue to think on. Those are the four steps that I have found time and time again really help make inroads in making it safe for others to tell you the truth. And Todd, you, you may not know it, but we have the kind of podcast where people are actively taking notes and then implementing what they hear. And I'm, I'm going to repeat these four steps because I think they work in a Terrific. business. I would imagine they would work on a podcast show so you can do an even better job on the next podcast. And I think they're going to work okay, in any good. single relationship ever. I mean, l- listen to these one more time. To make it safe to tell the truth, here we go. I, this is what I heard you say. Assume good intent. Assume, assume the best. Try not to be defensive. Ooh, man, that's hard to uncross your arms and expect the best from those around us, including ourselves. Secondly, to ask for real feedback and provide the space for that truth to come out. Third, to evaluate the feedback, to begin implementing what resonates and what actually might work. And then fourthly, to act on it, which does not necessarily mean to take action, but to decide what you will implement and also, as importantly, what you choose not to. Huge. Perfect. And and, and to your point, I use these, and again, I'm, I'm not, when I, when, when I remember it, I remember those four steps, I'm great at it. When I don't, I fall down, and I fall down a lot. But I use these at home. I use these with my kids, with my wife. They use them with me. Uh, we don't go through the fit. Let's write the four steps on the wall. Right. But I assume good intent with my wife. I ask for the feedback in a meaningful way. I, and then I carefully think through, and then I, I act on it by, by either implementing it or sharing with her you know, kind of a follow-up. I really appreciate our discussion and blah, blah, blah. So. Thanks for summarizing. No, Todd, and you know, you're growing not only those grandbabies, those children, your spouse, yourself, and your entire team at Franklin Covey, plus all the the readers through your book. What's one thing that you do every day to get better? Well, boy, you got great questions going. <laughs> Practice nine is examine your real motives. And and so while I haven't thought of it the way you just phrased it. As I'm, as I'm driving to work every day, as I'm, as I'm getting ready in the morning, before I even get in the car, I think about, I, I kind of do an ego check. And I think about, you know, the last chapter in the book, ironically, is called Start with mm-hmm. Humility. <laughs> and so I, I, as I drive to work, or as I'm, again, right now doing a lot of interviews, a lot of hype going on with his book, I think, Todd, remember your mission. I've, I've written what's called a, a mission statement, yes. um, and, and it's something that we—it's a tool that we have at Franklin Covey. But but many people have something like a value statement or something you try and live by. And I have a mission statement that's pretty lengthy, but it's but it's it's you know summarizing a quick phrase I can repeat to myself, and it just grounds me so that regardless of what way the winds are blowing this day, or mm-hmm. what challenges I have, or what challenging or interesting or or um, crazy people I, I interact with that I remember what my real purpose is and what I really want to be about in life, whether it's professional or personal, because it's the same for me, you know, what I really want to be about. And at the end of the day, what I want, what I want to have accomplished. So, so that's just a thought process that I go through as I'm getting ready, as I'm driving to work in the morning that carries out through when I drive home. Well, in doing so, you've inspired us, your readers and those you influence through your life to, to do likewise. To, to examine truly who we are, why we are, what really matters, where we want to really go next, and, and how most effectively to get there. It's an incredible book. It's incredible work, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Get better. It's new. It's out right now. It's from Todd Davis. You guys, you ladies, you friends are going to love it, so con- consider checking it out. Todd, all of our guests who come on to the Live Inspired podcast are asked the same seven questions, so I'm going to shift gears right now and walk you through the gauntlet. Uh, seven questions that I'm convinced you, you can indeed navigate. Question number one is, it, uh, what, what is the best book, Todd Davis, that you've ever read? Well, besides Where the Red Fern Grows in fifth grade, when I just <laughs> needed a box of tissues for Big Dan and Little Lamb. <laughs> um, boy, what a great question. Uh I, I, I don't know that I will say the, the – I mean, I'm just thinking of so many, and, I, and, I, and I'm friends with some of these authors, but, I, I, you know, relationships are important. I want to be sensitive to that. Um, but, but one that really changed me – well, I, I, can I give two? Can you I may, two? yes. Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point. Mm-hmm. 
because it was just eye-opening for me to say, no, it's, it's just going that little extra mile. All of a sudden, all of your work for all these years or whatever you've been focused on, it can change with the tipping point. It's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal read for those who haven't read it. Yes. And then Seth Godin's Lynchpin yes. um, is, is very inspiring. And, and I happen to have the one, I'm not name dropping here. I was just so inspired by him and had the incredible opportunity of meeting with him a couple of times personally. And, and Lynchpin is a, is a very inspiring read. Uh, and, and they both have to do with understanding the influence that you as one person can have. The, the difference you can make. You just you dropped two mighty massive names there, and and not only did you drop it on the podcast, you dropped it on the front of your book. Uh, on the cover of your book, it says a toolbox full of wisdom, and it's a quote from Seth Godin. So uh, not only do you uh, get your inspiration from him, but the cool thing is now he's getting his from you. I think that's so full well, circle. And he beautiful. is he is a remarkable role model in my life, and and like I said, I've had the the great fortune. Of, of meeting with him a couple of times, and, and what, a, what a great mentor and friend he has been and is to me. Tomorrow, Todd Davis, you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died at 103, leaving you with millions of dollars. What would you do with that newfound wealth? I'm, uh, I'm pausing because I, I, I can be, and I think this comes with age, I can be an emotional person, but I would, uh, and I don't mean for this to sound anything than other than what my immediate answer was to that question, having no idea you were going to ask it, I would take it all down to Puerto Rico right now mm. and go help. Yeah, I'd hop on there with you, man. It, it breaks Thank my you. heart on how this is, these are our brothers and sisters. And, I uh, yeah, there's, I there's can't a, comprehend it right now. Yeah, it's, well, thank you for sharing that. If your house caught fire... And all living things are already out. That's your family, your animals. And you have a chance to run in and grab one item, just one thing that means a lot to you. What would you run back in and grab? Well, you know, many years ago, I would say all the pictures, but I think we have most of those digitally, mm. you know, sword. That was my initial thought here. So um, I, I think... <laughs> Again, I have to be so careful here because you're, you're going to think I'm a whip. He can't play baseball and he balls on the podcast. Um, for, for many we'll have years, to edit the majority of this interview afterwards. It's, just, it's all going to be in the trash can. <laughs> edit out the edit That's out right. The uh, for many years, my – well, I have this electronically too, but I'll still share it. Uh, for many years, my kids, um, on Christmas morning, before we open up gifts and that, we spend an hour or two. We, we write letters to each other. You write a letter to everybody in the family. And then we sit in our living room before we go to the family room and open up gifts, and we read these letters to each other um, about what we appreciate about each other. There's a letter for each person. And we <laughs> sit there for sometimes two hours. All these gifts are waiting, and we sit there and ball and read these letters. And a couple of years ago, I archived those. They have like, gosh, 17, 18 years of those letters. I, I, I printed them all out and put them all in binders and gave each of the kids and their families the binder of those letters. And I have mine in there, so I would – um, I guess I wouldn't need to grab it because my kids have copies, but I'd run in and grab that binder. That's probably one of the most meaningful things to me that's in our house right Todd, now. Todd, we, we've spent more than a half an hour together and, and out of everything, and you've shared a lot of wisdom, and that is awesome. That is so awesome. I'm always looking for one nugget from an interview that I can actually apply, like truly apply. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I know we're out of time, but I'll tell you something funny. It started with a fight. My wife and I were out Christmas shopping, when our kids were little, we came home and they had been arguing. They were all in fights. And it was a, a week or two before Christmas. And in my anger, I wasn't exercising many of the principles I talk about here. My anger, I said, you are all going to sit down right now and you're going to write letters to each other and tell each other what you love about each other. It was just all out of anger. And our kids wrote the most beautiful letters to each other and to my wife and me. We didn't yes. have to do that. And so that's this uh, tradition started out of an angry uh, night and an argument, and then we continue. And we did this tradition. We do it every Christmas morning now. We don't get angry. We don't have the fight first. We just write the letters. <laughs> well, we, we, I'm planning on having both, so y- y'all can look forward to the O'Leary's <laughs> fighting and then making up this Christmas. Okay, Todd, it's a it's a great <laughs> practice, man. Really, I, I appreciate you opening up your your house and sharing that one. If you, my friend, could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anybody, living or dead. Who would you want to be hanging out on that park bench with? Wow. 
you're good at this. You should do this for a living, John. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, great question. Oh, so many people, so many people come to mind. Um, I, I can't, this is going to sound a little bit uh, canned, and I don't mean it to be, but, but two people that just popped into my mind would be real, real saints, you know, Mother Teresa and Gandhi, because only because they're, they're people I would aspire to be more like, and I would just want to understand them even better. And that, again, I don't mean that to sound noble or altruistic. I just, that, that came to mind. The first that came to mind was my dad. Um, and, and then, and then the, those two, those two admirable figureheads. Brother, awesome. You, you, we're down to the final two questions. So the second to last, what would you I tell your... Thinking, wait a minute, this is like 18 questions. I know, it just keeps going. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? To believe in myself. Mm. To realize that you don't have to be like everybody else. That you have worth and potential. That you have talents that nobody else has. Um, that you can make a difference in the world. Todd Davis, you do make a difference in the world, and it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? <laughs> well, my dad would yell, swing at the ball! <laughs> but, uh, my, my, my one sentence would be, actually, it would be a thought I had a few months ago. I was following a, uh, it's a bumper sticker, but I changed the bumper sticker. I was following a big motorhome and they were towing a boat, and I swear they had like ATVs stacked up on top of the motorhome, lots of toys. And, and trust me, I would love all those things. Yes. I'm, not, I'm not criticizing anybody who has that. But the bumper sticker, and I think we've all seen it, or some of us have seen it, it said, he who dies with the most toys wins. And the, the driver, you know, good-naturedly was kind of mocking all the toys he was with. And I thought about that, not being critical of him, but I just, I thought to myself, he or she who dies with the most meaningful relationships wins. That's how I would summarize in one sentence. Brother Todd Davis, you have encouraged us to die with the most meaningful relationships within, but also to live with the most meaningful relationships uh, present. So, man, we appreciate your time. Uh, My friends, that was Todd Davis. This is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. Well, my friends, if you enjoyed listening to Todd Davis as much as I enjoyed bringing him to you, go ahead, roll right over right now to our website. You'll see a lot more in the show notes. You'll see links to Todd's amazing book and the work that he does, and also all of our past podcasts at JohnO'LearyInspires.com. Again, that's JohnO'LearyInspires.com. In a marketplace that has so much negativity, so much fear, so much trepidation, we try through these podcasts and through our overall mission to bring out stories of possibility, stories of hope, stories of faith, stories of love, and stories of us, like Todd said, being the captain of our own ships, of choosing the way we navigate the waves that we are currently dealing with at work, in relationships, in our spiritual journey, financially, and in life. So check it all out at JohnO'LearyInspires.com. If you enjoyed this podcast or if you enjoy the work that we bring to you, go ahead and take a moment also to share it online, Facebook, social media, Twitter, wherever you hang out online. Tell your friends there about the Live Inspired podcast. Tell the ladies and gentlemen that you work out with or worship with, work with, hang out with, that there's good news and that there's a reason for hope and there's a reason to check out our movement. So for this time and until next time, this is John O'Leary and today is your day. Live Inspired.